Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z of sex, or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, and a gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist. And I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. I created this podcast to help you learn to express your desires, learn more about desires, spice up your relationships, and create those sizzling relationships that you have always wanted. I do this through solid science, real-life stories, and conversations with an exciting array of experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies that will help you choose the relationship style that works best for you and create exactly what you want and need. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can take advantage of the subscriber bonuses. And if you want to know more, head over to drlauribethbisbee.com and sign up for my email list so that you can find out exactly what is going on in my world from week to week. But for now, come join me and enter my world of sex and relationships. See you inside. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, a sex and intimacy coach, a gender, sex and relationship diversity therapist. And I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. If you've listened to the show before, you know I've been going since 2016. And each time we finish the alphabet, we start again. So we are now on the letter B. And today, B is for beyond monogamy. I am on location today with Jonathan Kent, who is the author of a book that's just come out, which is brilliant, called A World Beyond Monogamy. And I'm going to let him introduce himself because I have the privilege of actually sitting opposite him. Yeah, I was just going to say, once you finish the alphabet, you could go with different alphabets, couldn't you? You could do the Greek alphabet, you could do the <laughs> Cyrillic alphabet. You get really, really bogged down in Chinese characters. But OK, putting that to one side. So I am, uh, by profession, a journalist and communications professional. Uh, I've worked for extensively for the BBC. I'm currently making a a radio documentary for Radio 4 about the British-born Chinese community. Uh, I've written for people like Newsweek, uh, Reuters I worked for for a bit. So I've been a, a journalist for most of the last 30 years on and off. Brilliant. So thank you for coming on. I know we've, you've been on before. This was timely for me because um, yeah, the, the book was long awaited. I've read the book. I love the book. And we're going to talk a lot about the book and non-monogamy. Um, but as some of you may or may not know, I have, I'm the resident psychologist, the resident specialist relationship therapist. I think that was the title they gave me on Open House, The Great Sex Experiment, which is on Channel 4 in the UK at the moment. It's six episodes. We're about to have episode three tonight. And um, so I'm spending a lot of time talking about non-monogamy as I have done in the past. So these two things coincide really well. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk about this book in particular is that it is not what people typically think of as non-monogamy. There seems to be a potted view that mostly does come from North America. Um, uh, North Americans uh, do tend to be more willing in some ways to write about, talk about some of the alternatives in certain spaces. Um, and... 
what I found really special about this book is that it is voices from other places and other cultures. So you actually really made it a point to solicit as much as you could from across the world. And there are some really interesting cultures we don't normally hear from in terms of non-monogamy. So I worked for a fair number of years out in Southeast Asia as a foreign correspondent. And my job out there, and this was back in the early to mid-noughties, was very much to find out what people in that part of the world thought. Uh, My stomping ground was Malaysia and Singapore. It was a time when everybody was very interested in what Muslims thought because it was post-2001. I went out in 2002 and was there till 2007-8 and spent still a lot of my time uh, out in Southeast Asia uh, because it feels like home uh, along with England. And it really, really brought home to me how much we take for granted about the assumptions that we make inevitably and how shocking it can be when you find that other people do not share your cultural assumptions. They come from somewhere completely different. And forgive me, American listeners, America is... I was reminded of the fact that back in 1776, the American army was called the Continental Army because, hey, you were an entire continent. And there is a quite a sense, listening to American media... Yeah, that anything of interest is is happens in America. Anything that happens outside America is, and I'm just brought home to me recently. This is like sidebar. I was watching. This is my pandemic viewing. I went through all the episodes of Star Trek Voyager. Yep. And there are two excruciating episodes in the last season, uh, set on the, the holodeck episode set in late nineteenth, early twentieth century Ireland. I mean, and short of there being virtual leprechauns hopping around, it was every, every cultural cliche that you could imagine. And it It, is frustrating. Do you know, it's so funny because I'm, so I'm, uh, listeners may not know I'm a huge Star Trek fan, like to the point of having gone to cons for years. Um, And I, I, um, I have tinnitus and I, so I need noise to go to sleep and white noise doesn't do it. So I actually sleep to the Star Trek series. Um, the original series, Next Generation, Voyager, and Deep Space Nine. I don't sleep to the new series because I haven't watched them enough so that they fade into the background. So I've watched, I mean, I watch them over and over and over again. Um, and so now you all know how much of a nerd I am if you didn't know already. Um, and on those episodes are fab. You know, like the concept that they, they, they came up with on the holodeck are fab. But the fact that that is... The way that you're right, they portray every single stereotype, and I mean and, it's affectionate. Don't get and me it is, wrong; it's wonderfully it's- affectionate. But there's no there's no sense of reality. So I've been in this country in the United Kingdom for 32 years now. This is my 32nd year, and um, and go blimey, we all like Dick Van Dyke. Well, yes, <laughs> but when I came, you know, when I when I was. I, I came because I, I, I had a husband. Well, he wasn't a husband yet, and he wanted me to emigrate, so I did. And in my naivete, I actually didn't think that it would be a big deal because we both spoke the same language. And culturally, it was the hugest shock for me. But one of the things that I now take for granted because I live here that shocks me when I go back to the United States is how much varied news we actually get living here because 
being a small island nation and close to Europe, if you only reported on what went on within your borders and with a quiet mention of other things or a mention of other things when there's a big, huge thing happening, you would be disadvantaged. Whereas in America, there is, as you say, there's a lot of ethnocentrism. So I'll have friends and family tell me about something that they saw and they'll say, you know, oh, this thing. And I'll be like, yeah, but what about this, 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 and this? Uh, well, we didn't hear about that. And the view on what's happened is so totally different because there's not wide enough exposure. So I think it's that becomes even worse when you start talking about alternative relationships um, or alternative lifestyles that... Um, Unless people make an effort to find out how things are done elsewhere, they don't know. And people get really excited when they discover, back that up for a second, particularly if you've been uncomfortable with what you have been handed in terms of relationship style and what you, and, and sexuality. When you discover the thing that fits or the things that fit, people get really excited and they can become zealots. And Americans, I count myself as one, are often more willing to speak out loud than, than the Brits. Brits are going to be quieter about it, consider it, consider what's going to come across. We're just going to say it. I mean, let, let me give you an example that really brought it home to me. And this is before I started researching the book. I mean, the, the, the decision to start researching the book was made at the end of 2017 after going to a talk in Germany, which I... Th found particularly annoying because it was a talk by somebody who I felt was trying to set themselves up as, inverted commas, an expert on polyamory specifically rather than consensual non-monogamy in general, and paraded their three partners and their ex-husband uh, on the front of the stage to say, look at all my sweet ears and look, we all still get on with my ex and all of this kind of stuff. And came out with things like cliches like, no one can make you feel anything. Well, I really took issue with that <sighs> because while that's a good thought in the context of it's not good getting into an argument and saying, you make me feel like this, when it's much more constructive. And I go quite a lot into the book into nonviolent communication. Absolutely. It's, it's better to phrase things like that, obviously. When this happens, I end up feeling like this. So it's there's a link, but it's not implying motivation, that sort of thing. And, of course, anybody who's been in an emotionally abusive relationship knows that somebody can absolutely go out of their way to try and make you feel paranoid or sad or frightened or what have you. So I thought there's a lot of bad advice out there about consensual non-monogamy. But I had a strong sense that I didn't want to set myself up as an expert. So I went out and talked to people about their own experiences. And the, uh, the other starting point for this, and I think this is really, really shows the difference, and it's mentioned in the book, between, for instance, uh, the environment somewhere like China and the environment in North America, is... I helped a friend who's an academic in the Netherlands, but from uh, Sichuan in China originally, uh, edit their doctoral thesis. And it was about how the Chinese social and legal uh, framework affects people who are queer. 
mm-hmm. and there is a phenomenon there called uh, tonki, I think, which is uh, women who are unknowingly married to gay men, and there is a, 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 an equivalent men who are unwittingly married to gay women. And one of the examples she gives, because obviously people are very angry about this, it's called marriage fraud in, in China. But there is such pressure on people there to produce, to get married and to produce children and to honour the parents by doing so. This enormous weight of family expectation that a lot of people enter into marriages to preserve appearances, really. And there's a cost to that. There was an example, though, of, of, of a conversation um, between a husband and wife where the man, and this was accounted by the man and, and not the woman, and he was saying, well, we had these conversations and it's like, um, I say to my wife, well, what if uh, I was gay and I was going out and seeing other guys? And, uh, you know, and, and she was saying, well, I don't know. I could have a husband who was going out and seeing other women. It doesn't really make much difference. I know that I, and they were talking obliquely, so they didn't mm. really address the problem. As he put it, you know, she's smart enough to know not to poke the paper window, I think it was. Um, uh, that's a lovely phrase. Which is a lovely phrase. But she was saying, you know, I know that I have a good husband and he looks after me and my children. And who is to say that I could find another man who is that good? And, and this simply brought home to me this, that in places like North America and to a great extent across m- much of Europe, one has a much greater degree of freedom to come out and be honest about things to everybody. But there are many societies where that degree of openness that the sort of San Francisco type people, writers, go, really, you just have to be totally honest with everybody. Well, yeah, try that in Iran, try that in Saudi, I, it, try that in there's China. A, there's a whatever. complete unawareness around, around sometimes around the consequences for, for doing that. But also, you know, even if there aren't that level of consequences, uh, level of consequence there are times where it does doesn't necessarily help to do it I, i'm going to use my own example because i find it it's it's apropos at the moment um I, I i think i i told my parents that i was non-monogamous when um my son was staying with them for a few weeks and then was going to come out and stay with myself and my now husband, who was my then partner. And my son would talk to, I knew my son would talk about TJ a lot because he really liked TJ and I didn't want them to try and educate him, right? I didn't want them to think something uncomfortable. I didn't want them to think that the child was telling tales on me and do something that was going to make my son feel shame around how he felt about this person and around me. So I decided, okay, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm just going to tell them. So I said, look, um, we're non-monogamous. This is what it means. Uh, It's open and honest. You know, his dad knows. We're all friends. We go on holiday together because at that time that was the case. It's nothing to worry about. I'm only telling you this because I don't want you to kind of give a shameful message to, to my child. And so my father at the time wrote me a letter because that's what he did when he was conflicted. And he wrote me a letter explaining to me that it would be better if I had an affair, which I found tremendously amusing. Like, why would it be better if I had an affair? How could it possibly be better lying 
right, than being open and honest. And we had a, a great conversation, and he finally got it, and she got it, and then it was never talked about again. You know, years down the line, I got married to the man that I was, I was with. And I know that in my mother's mind, that meant this, whatever this craziness was done. Move up to the present day, and this show is out, and of course, all the press, lots of press, mentions that I'm non-monogamous. So my mother's wanting to see bits and pieces of the, sh- of the show and the press, and I now have a quandary. She's 82 years old. I don't feel like having an argument with her about it. I don't feel like dealing with the fallout of it. I don't really want to make her feel any sort of a way. You know, we tried. She didn't accept it. But now she wants to see her daughter's doing this great thing. She wants to see it. So it's been, you know, I've been like really restricting the media. But she went and um, she read an article in the New York Post. And there was one line in the article that just said, you know, it was Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, who is non-monogamous herself, right? So she said, oh, I read an article in the New York Post that you were in. And I was like, oh, okay. What'd you think? She said, it was long. <laughs> so there are things. Well, I mean, some of the things in the New York Post just gone for pages, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. It was long. But my mother <laughs> is like college educated and, and would sit down and read your book, right? And yet, for her, she said, I said, she said, how much post are you getting? I said, well, I'm getting a lot of post and some of it is, you know, dating requests. Um, and and I was laughing about some of the dating requests um, because some of the dating requests were from people young enough to be my son. Um, and so I always find that sweet but amusing. It's like, I'm um, sorry. Um, it's cheaper than the gym. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anybody who's too too close to my child's age is just, my son is going to be 20 this, uh, this in a couple of months. So, um, so I was finding that amusing. Um, and she said, well, why don't you just tell them you're married? which told me that we have not, you know, we've erased the non-monogamy. And I was just like, and then at that point, I thought, okay. And I moved the conversation on. And so I have the freedom of that because I, I am in a country where the, the consequences of me doing that are not huge. But as you say, if you're in Iran and you tell somebody who's not okay with it, where do you find yourself? It, unfortunately, it's like being in Texas right now. If you um, um, if you're pregnant, there are a lot of similarities. Yeah, I mean, one theocracy versus another theocracy. Yeah. You know, take your pick. So um, that is for me one of the biggest selling points. That you know, you're writing aside one of the biggest selling points of this book, and one of the reasons I think it's actually a very important book is that it's comprehensive and it's got many viewpoints. The comprehensiveness is great. Um, you have taken the time to not just give the stories, but to also talk about some of the skills underpinning. I, I think that, that that's that's kind of you, and it's and it's an important point. So the starting point in terms of thinking about how I was going to go about it in terms of who I was going to talk to, um, it was really informed by my background working as a, a correspondent in other parts of the world. And being very used to going out and just making people feel safe, mm-hmm. making people feel relaxed, establishing trust and then getting them to talk honestly. Obviously, most of the people in the book, uh, the majority, I suspect, have chosen not to give their real names. But that's not important. Their experiences are. But early on, I set the framework and I did that by going through 
everything I could think of about consensual non-monogamy, and I may have missed bits, but I consulted people like Meg John Barker, who wrote the foreword, who was very kind enough to do that, and just arranged 70-odd chapters in, I think, seven sections. It's like everything I could think of. So, you know, what it is, why it's named, how you get there, what it's like coming out, you know, how you deal with prejudices. Then, you know, going through all the different styles of consensual non-monogamy. And obviously there are as many variants on that as there are people, but, you know, broad headings and so on to give people at least a flavour of, of, of what they might find and then hopefully finding their own unique way of doing it. Yep. Uh, you know, and then inevitably, and the other thing I wanted to avoid, so the third section is is broadly titled Heffalump Traps. If you know Winnie the Pooh, you will know what a Heffalump Trap is. If you don't, you need to read Winnie the Pooh. So, <laughs> and, and Winnie the Pooh country is very close to where, where we both live. We're, we're, yep, absolutely. Yeah, just, it's just further into Sussex from here. And there isn't obviously a one true way of doing consensual non-monogamy, not least because it's so varied, but... There is no shortage of people who will tell you that there is. What there is, I suspect, are fairly well-established ways of screwing it up. Yes. It's far easier to talk about the universal ways of screwing it up than the universal ways of making it work. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, it's And let's take something which is often slightly controversial in uh, poly circles, which is unicorn hunting. And obviously when somebody goes onto a poly site, particularly on Facebook, and says, hi, we just decided to open up our relationship. We want a third. Woo, we've arrived. And everybody piles on. It's a common pitfall. But as I know you will be the first to say, that does not mean that being a unicorn is fundamentally wrong. It just means that there are all sorts of pitfalls around that. And you need to be or you don't need to be aware of them, but it really helps to be aware of them. So you don't simply jump in a heffalump trap that somebody else has already jumped in sort of like 10 times. Save yourself the trouble. So here's the thing. Um, so and, and if, if you've watched Open House, um, you know, the premise of Open House is couples who want to open their relationships. Um, we had a, a, an array of couples who came to the retreat. It's a cut down version of a retreat that I do. So basically provide a safe environment for people to explore opening their relationship. It's a mix of time with me and time exploring and then being able to come back and see me and work on, well, what went well and what didn't go well um, so that they can gain the skills that they need to actually make this work. Um, lots of couples do want to open up their relationship only sexually. Um and do want to open up only sexually by bringing in another woman, right? There's a lot it's of that. not uncommon. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I get so furious when I end up in, in poly circles where you hear all this hor the horrible couples who. You know what? Some people don't care about other people's feelings. That's not a coupledom thing. That's an everybody thing. Most of the time... The hunters are people who just don't know better. They don't know etiquette. And there's different etiquette for any environment that you're in. There are some basic skills that you can have that make sure you avoid that trap. Like everybody sits down together and discusses what they want to get out of this relationship, be it a one-time sexual experience or an ongoing relationship, and you negotiate how you get your needs met. Absolutely. And acknowledge, hopefully, that needs change. What people thought they wanted at the outset might not be 
what do they realize they want after the first encounter and Truth. so forth. And that that's something that you have to keep negotiating. That's Absolutely. People, but, but this is not a, a thing that goes with non-monogamy. This is a monogamy thing too. Relationships. And that's one of the things, like some people would be sitting there saying, well, why do I want to read this book? Because actually I'm monogamous and I know I'm monogamous and I don't need any of that information. Rubbish. I mean, communication and negotiation skills and self-awareness are all things that are woefully lacking in most relationships. And they're worse when you have adopted the dominant culture relationship style because you think you already know. Well, we pick it up by osmosis. Yeah. And we don't interrogate it. We just take it off the peg. Yes. And so you can't even have a monogamous relationship if you just follow the established patterns laid out in monthly articles in Cosmo or wherever, um, you can't even customise your monogamous relationship. And part of this book is, is and is subtitled, How People Make Polyamory and Open Relationships Work and What We Can All Learn From Them. Absolutely. Because if nothing, apart from the relationship skills, apart from the negotiation, apart from the communication and nonviolent communication and all of these things, and a willing, there's a willingness to design your own relationship to suit you. And there are many, many different forms of monogamous relationship can take. I, I feel like part of the book is saying to people, look, here, people who've got sort of like three, four, five partners have a very, very varied life. Or these people are swingers and kind of take enormous pleasure in watching somebody they're immensely close to having sex with a third party and so on. If people can do that and have happy relationships, then I'm sure that it's possible in the context of a monogamous relationship, to be cool about your partner going to the cinema one evening with somebody of a different gender or the, the, the gender they're attracted to, it doesn't have to be a, a big deal. You can give each other freedom because, hey, if people can deal with their partners having sex with other people, you, you can probably sort of like deal with your partner going out and having a cup of coffee with somebody else, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and fair point, that's one of the big issues. The other part for me is this idea that um, you shouldn't have to work on anything because it should be spontaneous, because, you know, this is how it is. You know, we all live happily ever after. You find the one, you settle down, and you're happy. And actually, what people need to be told is, yeah, you keep working and evolving, just like you do in any other area of life, when you, you know, come out of university or when you finish your A-levels, or what, when you do finish an apprenticeship, you're at one level with the career you might be doing. Uh, then you move to another level. Then you may change careers, right? You're not going to stay at the same place. Nothing is static. But we have these weird ideas that when it comes to relationships, there is a way that we are supposed to do it. And unfortunately, and that to me, this is monogamy thinking, and I, I call that monogamy hangover, we translate that often into non-monogamous relationships. Very so much. The number of people that Very I much. meet that think that this is the way it has to go. For example, and this, I want you to weigh in on this one. This is a big one. Everything must be equal. All relationships, oops, all relationships must be equal. Um, it's not okay to have anything prioritized. It's not okay, right? This is like the, the, the received wisdom to have, in the old days, you would have a primary partner a lot of the time. That was how it was described. And then you had other people who weren't your primary partner. Now it's like, oh, you can't do that. It's not acceptable. Well, it's a bit like having Christmas dinner and everybody has to have an equal portion of Brussels sprouts. 
I don't like Brussels sprouts. I don't sprouts. like Brussels sprouts, which means that somebody has foisted on me unwanted Brussels sprouts. While there's somebody at the other end of the table who loves Brussels sprouts and the after effects, they can go and close themselves away in a room and enjoy those later. And they're being deprived of Brussels sprouts because I've been forced to have some. So that's a, a slightly trivial example, but there are many areas in life where equal is not necessarily fair. Thank you. And that's the, that's, that's the bit. Say that again for the people in the back. Equal is not necessarily fair. Thank you. Equal is also not special. And when people are shouting that they want equal in those situations, but they don't actually want equal. If everybody's equal, nobody's special. I mean, there are things that didn't get into the book, and there's one that will go into a second edition if I get around to it, which is at your behest, which is talking about the sweat equity mm-hmm. that you build up in a relationship. And I think this is a really valuable thought, and it fill, sort of links very much to this idea about fairness versus equality. And as you pointed out, if you have put 20 years of effort into a relationship and you have a mortgage and children and all these other things, then fairness is not necessarily equal time with somebody who's turned up sort of like 10 minutes ago. Obviously, you know, when somebody turns up 10 minutes ago, the person they've started a relationship within an existing relationship can get very skippy. So there's a big discussion in the book about new relationship energy, for instance, the phenomenon whereby all your hormones kick in and they're the most exciting thing and it's easy for uh, existing partners to feel somewhat sidelined or forgotten or left out or what have you. Um, And there isn't a magic formula. I do actually put a formula in the book at one point and then I said, yeah, I just made that up. And because (laughs) (laughs) I'd love it to be... (laughs) So there's no nerds here. Just in case you didn't notice, there were no nerds in in the making of this podcast. (laughs) So, you know, there isn't a magic formula. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a book about the messiness of life and the fact that from from cradle to grave, we have to work at things. And if we didn't, we would get bored. If we didn't, we would lose interest. And, you know, I, my partner uh, drives me nuts occasionally. But I, I'm absolutely dotty about her because she is one of the most interesting people I've ever met with the most intriguing brain. And I don't get bored. But... Does that mean that it's always easy? No. Oh, God, no. Or for her? No, absolutely not. And, but, you know, do you surrender interesting for easy? Well, some people do. Some people do. And and that's okay. If that's, the thing is, for me, it's about choice. And everything is a choice. And when I say that, and people get upset, um, I was doing an Instagram live last night and um, with, um, my sister and partner, Blue Frost, and um, we did this Instagram live and we were talking about choice in the live and we both said, yeah, you know, everything is a choice. You always have a choice. And so, of course, afterwards, I got a DM from somebody who was like, well, you know, I didn't choose to get um, attacked and I didn't choose to get sick. And I, I said, that's not what I'm saying. Sometimes they, they missed the first statement. The first statement was not everything is in your control and step one is to figure out what you can control and what you cannot and here's the quick tip guys mostly we can control ourselves that's it so once you say mostly that, and some people struggle with that right so including me yeah no and, and most of us struggle with that at various points yes. I, I don't think some people i think almost everybody struggles with that at various points but i know what's in the purview of my control is me 
Okay, I know that. That's actually quite freeing because if I stop trying to control you, since I don't have a hope in hell, I can ask you, I can suggest, but if I try to control you, I don't have a hope in hell of doing that. And I can't tell you how many marriages one partner is trying to change the other. It's exhausting. It's soul destroying. You're better off going, okay, this is what I've got control over me. So once you've got that, you get handed things because we don't have control over lots of things. So I didn't choose to have an autoimmune disease. That wasn't my choice. But what I can choose is how I am going to deal with it. My choices may be limited by my life circumstances, by privilege, by culture, by all sorts of things. But you always have at least one choice. Even if that choice is to die, you always have a choice. The reason it's good to get your head around thinking about that is that it frees you up. I mean, this is the heart of Stoic philosophy. This is the yeah. heart of a lot of Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. And, and both of those have in, informed various uh, branches of other philosophies. I'm trying to read Marcus Aurelius at the moment. and it's difficult. Well, the translation's awful. I can't read it in the original language. And I find it, I do, I mean, I can't remember who it was that suggested it some years ago. Oh, yes, I can. And you have the same name as each other. <laughs> Um, one of my former partners, who's called Jonathan, um, suggested it. Um, and I don't remember why. There was a reason that he said, go back and read Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I admit to trying and failing. Anyway, so this is a possible next project. We'll I'll talk about that at some other point. Um, the thing, again, coming back to the book, that I can only keep stressing is that I'm trying to cover as many different aspects of consensual non-monogamy, and let's consider what those might be. There's, there's obviously various forms of polyamory. It, there's a lot about... Uh, well, there are a lot of people in the book who would describe themselves as either solo poly or relationship anarchists. Uh, it, it would can include people who are monogamish or have an open relationship, um, and also swingers as well. And some of the more interesting conversations I had in the book were with swingers, particularly um, a couple in Toronto, who really brought home to me how broad intimacy can be. When we think about intimacy, mm -hmm. you know, closeness can be achieved in other ways. And, and this was fascinating. Obviously, they're from North America. There are quite a few people from North America in the book and from Europe. There's also a lot from South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, um, a few from Africa, though, frankly, there could be more Africans in the book. And, and, and next edition, if there is one, I will absolutely try and, and track down more people from Africa. And essentially what I, I, I did editorially was ask people about all the topics and then uh, that I could think of and, and, and get their thoughts on tape and transcribe them. And then I thought, well, which are the best thoughts about, for instance, justice? Or which are the best thoughts about dealing with jealousy? And... The other group of people that I interviewed were academics, and there are about a 10 or a dozen of them in the books. Some of them uh, therapists, some of them uh, psychologists, some of them even a historian, a philosopher, uh, evolutionary psychologist, and so on. And there's quite a lot of reference to other academic works. I mean, it was really interesting uh, what I came across in the uh, course of researching the book. Robin Dunbar's work in, uh, he's a, uh, a, I think a social anthropologist, I could be wrong, from, uh, from Oxford, uh, who wrote extensively about 
it's, it's come to be known as Dunbar's number, the number of social connections that we can maintain oh, being remember. linked to the size of our prefrontal cortex, which is important because every time somebody tells you about their 150 best friends, we don't have the capacity to manage 150 best friends. We have the capacity to manage about five really close relationships, about 15 good friendships, about 50 friendships, about 150 close acquaintances, about 500 people uh, that you know by name, about 1,500 people that you might not ask in the street because you recognise them from somewhere. Now you're going to be, Laurie Beth, um, one of those 1,500 or maybe one of those 500 for thousands of people across the UK and maybe in the future in America because they'll all uh, uh, think, I know, I know her from somewhere. Where is it? Uh, yeah, I know, and it's that's always a really interesting one. That's a that's a. I don't have the context for the person I'm seeing. One of the things about um, this is for for my my um, lovely North Americans. One of the things about living in a country this small. Yes, it is small and quaint, and and quaint. It's also quaint, but it's very small. One of the things about living in a country this small is that if you are well known or in quotes, famous, uh, if you're an actor, if you're a politician, if you're a personality on a, in any media for any length of time and you're going to go to one of the major cities, there's only a limited number of major cities you can go to. And therefore, you're going to be seen by lots of people. And I remember the first experience I had being in London and seeing a TV personality on the street and saying, good morning, right? Because I thought I knew him. And he said good morning and kind of smiled sheepishly. And I didn't say anything else because I, you know, I thought I knew him, but I couldn't place his name and I went on. Um, and, um, and then it happened again the following week because apparently we had similar schedules at this point. About the third time I said, I really think I know you from somewhere, but I cannot place you. And he said, oh, probably television. And I went, oh, okay, I'm sorry I intruded. And he goes, excuse me? I said, I'm sorry I intruded. If I don't actually know you, then stopping you and saying I really think I know you is an intrusion. He's like, where did you come from? <laughs> and I have a sensitivity towards that. Hmm. You know, having um, taken many flights between the UK and, and Los Angeles with many very well-known actors and actresses because of where I was sitting in the plane um, and watching you obviously go in the better parts of planes than I do I do um, <laughs> um, and, and watching people actually intrude on people's rest and sleep to ask for selfies and things like that so I'm, I, I tend to step back but I hadn't had the experience myself um, until recently and I did have somebody come up to me and say I saw you the other night on Gogglebox <laughs> I have to. I have. I have. <laughs> I have to confess. I did go and fanboy somebody. Of, uh, when was it? Last year, some point. I saw the. Uh, he's a British comedian called Alexei Sale. Oh yeah. Sitting outside a a, a patisserie in Soho, and I had to say something because he went on a very very long running um, BBC radio program called Desert Island Discs, yep. which is probably. A better kind of tribute to your success in life than getting oh, a yeah, knighthood no, or something. If, it's the ultimate. If accolade, somebody really. ever asks you to be on Desert oh, God, Island yeah. discs, you know you've made it. And um, he, he he told the story of how his parents were were young communists, and he was sent off when he was growing up to young communist um, summer camps and stuff in Czechoslovakia. And one of his his eight tracks that he picked to be played was something like the Battle Hymn of the Soviet Air Force. And I just it was just such a joyous program. And he's just such a genial man. I just. 
told him very briefly that I I, I love the, the, the I have program. done that as well. You know, I have said, th- I, I love your work, but I'll say it as I'm moving, right? Like I will not. And yeah. it's only because I've, I've watched people be accosted. And that, I mean, but that's important when you start thinking about what intimacy is, yes. which is why you brought that up. And I yes. think that's a really important point, which is we don't, um, I we don't really define that. And again, this is something that goes beyond monogamy, goes beyond non-monogamy into how we understand relationships and what we learn about relationships and intimacy. So um, people are always at pains to tell me that it's not all about sex as though I don't know that. And I'm at pains to tell them that when you're doing a television program, sometimes it's about sex. Just there. Sometimes it is. And sometimes, but in real life, let me tell you, sex is not a dirty word. Ha. You know, it, it, sometimes this whole program is the A to Z of sex. There's a reason for that. Physical intimacy is a wonderful thing. And physical intimacy is something that most people enjoy. Some, so intimacy is essential to human beings. And we don't actually talk about intimacy. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, our diversion isn't really a diversion. It's really important. Um, and there are a lot of people who will scream and shout that physical intimacy is not necessary. For some people, sexual intimacy is not what they want. There are people who don't like to be touched. Please, neurodivergent people, please don't shout at me and tell me no neurodivergent people like touch. That's not true. Some don't do and some don't. There are also neurotypical who, people who don't like touch. Many people, however, who don't like touch don't like it because of bad past experiences with touch. And if you look at early research, and Harlow was the one who was seminal in this, it highlights how primates need touch as a means of um, feeling safe, secure, and comfortable, and that people start are, become touch-starved when they're deprived of touch. So the research that, that um, I wanted to mention that many people will have studied in psychology is Harlow's cloth monkey research. Basically, they took these monkeys away from their mothers, and they gave some monkeys a wire frame that they could cling to, and other monkeys a cloth monkey, a soft and cuddly monkey frame, soft, cuddly over the wire that they could cling to. And the ones that had the soft and cuddly did reasonably well. And the ones that didn't have anything cuddly or soft to have that closeness did very, very poorly indeed. Let me refer you to Instagram and endless pictures of small animals cuddling soft toys. Yes. There, that's beautiful. So... I mean, but that's, this is essential. And so intimacy is a broader category than, than what people often think of it as. I mean, I was very interested in the, 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 the shall we say, the emotional and uh, intellectual side of intimacy, how it is linked to uh, the physical side. In as much as in a mononormative society, that's a very kind of like mononormative, it's just one of those kind of words that people throw out just to, because it makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But in a society that's predominantly monogamous, we don't really talk much about our desires outside the dyad, outside the couple, because that's taboo. You're not supposed to have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not supposed to have sex outside the couple, but for a lot of people, you know, there is thought crime as well in, in relationships. And so for a lot of couples, their other halves private fantasies and so on are completely unknown territory they don't share you don't want to be shamed you don't want to be judged you keep quiet about it and you go the other way to people like who are, are swingers these walls have been not just 
broken down. They've been comprehensively pulverized. But not just that. I mean, what's always fascinating to me is that it's not just sexual fantasies, right? It's things like wanting other viewpoints, right? Like having a close friend. Some friendships are more intimate than sexual relationships. They're people that you are comfortable talking about your fears and foibles and things with because it feels safe. And there is a real taboo around doing that in many, I will say heteronormative, because I think it's both monogamy and heterosexuality that it gets wrapped up into um, societies. And even to the point of talk to a whole bunch of heterosexual men who are monogamous and say, I talk to them about friendships and be told, no, my partner does all of that for me. Do you know what a burden that is, guys? I mean, just let's, you know, the idea that I have to be your everything because you can't get support from another man or another woman. And then if you wanted to get support from another woman, frequently what you hear from the wife is he had an emotional affair. Was there something romantic about what they were doing? Well, no, but... You know, he was talking to her about everything. As though there's something wrong with that. Post-Second World War in particular, I think that we've seen in Western society it becoming much more nuclear. So we're broken down into small family units, typically one man, one woman, and the 2.4 kids. I always feel slightly sorry for the 0.4 because it sounds, you know, it's just malnutrition and all of that. <laughs> um, but so... We don't have the support networks. And this is something interesting, again, that came out of the book. When I talk to people from South Asia, when I talk to people from Southeast Asia, when I talk to people from other parts of Europe, you particularly find that family support networks are much stronger and, and much wider than in most of the Anglo-Saxon world, for instance, and I think particularly in, uh, in North America and, and the more traditional parts, for instance, of the UK, where, where we don't have that. And it's incredibly valuable. So when I was living out in Southeast Asia, my son's mother's family was incredibly supportive and uh, a, a real network. So everybody looked after everybody else. I'd never had that before, and I was kind of knocked sideways by it. And I, I, I hear British politicians saying, oh, well, may, maybe we should be a bit more like Chinese families and all look after our grandparents, because they're thinking, well, that would save the state money. Well, that, it doesn't work like that, but it's important if you've got it. If you don't have that... And that's another thing that, that crops up in the book, this idea of chosen families. Yes. For a lot of people, um, in part of the attraction of consensual non-monogamy, that could be a, a swinging community, but particularly poly networks, is that it's like a substitute family, and maybe more than that, a community, a tribe, call it what you want. But the more in recent years I've thought about the nature of our connections and politics in particular, the more I see it through a lens of belonging, our need to belong to a group, than I do particularly about it being a battle of ideas. Well, People it, will sh shift their thinking. And Sorry, just finish the yeah. point. And particularly looking at QAnon and the Trump phenomenon in the States. It's easier to shift your thinking to that of the group to maintain your part in that group and to maintain your support network and your extended family, tribe, community and so on than it is to try and persuade people to follow you. And so shifting your own thinking is... You can believe any sort of batshit crazy stuff you want, which is where cults come from. Mm -hmm. And why do you do that? 
because you need to belong, not because you intrinsically think those things are right. But if you manage to convince yourself of them, then it kind of like shuts down the cognitive dissonance where you think, you know, that everybody out there is a paedophile keeping children in underground tunnels and what have you. Yeah, look, la, 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 that's true. Because that way you can go on hanging out with Bob and Martha at the pub on a Saturday night. I mean, it's it's always interesting to me. Um, we talk about um, non-monogamy and, and, and chosen families, but um, it, it leather... And we we didn't mention leather families in in non monogamy. So for those of you who haven't listened to some of my earlier podcasts, um, some people who have a, tr- a authority transfer based relationships and are into BDSM um, are following leather traditions. Please go back and look at some of the earlier podcasts for deep definitions because I'm not going to do that here. I don't have time. Um, but also, leather families are quite hierarchical, but also quite supportive. And it, 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 so it's another way of organizing non-monogamy is through a leather family. And again, it's where your chosen family, they have your back. They're there as your support. They're there. I mean, to the point of if something happens in your family of origin, these are the people who are going to pitch in and come and help you. Um, and the extended support network. And it's it's incredibly important to the way in which people organize their lives. And it's one of the reasons that some people become non-monogamous, even if they don't want any kind of sexual non-monogamy. They'll become non-monogamous in order to gain access to a more supportive emotional community. Because in non-monogamy worlds, being emotionally supportive, regardless of your romantic relationship, is expected. Other, rather than looked upon like, well, that means you have designs on somebody or something like that. I think actually this is probably an appropriate juncture to talk about another thing that the book goes into, which is abuse and mm-hmm. the different characteristics <laughs> that you see in group dynamics, insofar as there are group dynamics in a lot of uh, polyamorous setups, is that that can be very powerful because rather than just having two people in a relationship where abuse is taking place, then you've got several people leaning on perhaps one or two others to comply or submit or what have you against their will and, 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 and to be coerced. And one of the greatest dangers, I think, in consensual non-monogamy, which I try and tackle consistently, just to puncture the bubble, is this idea that consensually non-monogamous people are somehow more evolved. And I know where that idea comes from. Oh, God, they're from. not. They're not. Totally I mean, not. you know, people are people. There it is. Yeah. But but a lot of people who come to consensual non-monogamy, I sense, find that they can cope with jealousy, find that they can have this, this wide supportive network to whom they're intimately attached, and they go, wow, this is so amazing. This is the way to do it. Why can't other people be like that? And it's easy, I suspect, to feel that you've discovered something and you've hit, you know, you've reached another level. The downside of that, apart from the fact that it can make you sanctimonious and a right pain in the ass if you go on about it enough, is that it can blind you to the fact that all the 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 human failings that we see in other walks of life can equally be found, albeit with a slightly different cast, in consensually non-monogamous circles. Sure. They stop being consensual for a start, and that. Group dynamics are powerful and the pile-on factor is powerful and and there can be a lot of bullying. Sure. And, I mean, one of the things that I find um, fascinating is, like, the idea that there's one poly community. Let's be clear, there isn't. 
There are many different communities of all types. Um, and this idea that um, it's somehow better, I and mean, of course, because I've done this show, and, and various reporters have been like, oh, and well, but she's obviously biased because she's non-monogamous. I work with people who are monogamous, non-monogamous, and every ilk in between. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll come right out and say it. I am pro-non-monogamy for me. For you, I'm pro-choice. And consent. Yeah. Those are the two things. Yeah. That's the, the, for that's you, the central thing. I am absolutely pro-choice because I want you to make the choice that's best for you. And all good choices involve consent. And that is primarily what the book advocates. Consent first, choice uh, along with that, and not for consensual non-monogamy. For anything. And, and remembering, of course, that um, people change and grow and nothing is set in stone um we're look out for eyes for identity and identity politics because we're going to pick that up and talk about what happens when people get polarized and think these things are set in stone i may be non-monogamous right now there may be a time where i do not want to be non-monogamous and so I may choose not to be non-monogamous. As with anything, you can revoke your consent at any time. Absolutely. I mean, that will bring us into a whole new subject and probably better discuss. Yeah, no, we don't have time for it. We don't yeah. have time. But yes, so the other thing is this is a big book. I should I should. It is a this. big book. It is a big <laughs> book. There is like 580-odd pages in it. Uh, to give you an idea, the ethical slut, which I have here, um, runs to about half that. So, and then the ethical slut for many people will be will be a big book. The thing about this being a big book, though, is one of the nice things about this is that you don't necessarily have to read this cover to cover. No, um, and it's not really set out like it's that. not it's, set it's more out a reference book. Yeah, it's set out more like a reference book, and because Jonathan has done a really nice job um, with the table of contents and um, with the index, you can actually go to a section that you want to go to because you, it's an area you're interested in. It's also a book you can just dip into and dip out of. And um, so that makes it much more manageable, even though it's a it's a very big book. It is. I just I can't recommend this read enough. Um, if you're somebody who reads uh, books in this area, you're reading things on non-monogamy, on, on alternative lifestyles, whatever, this get, will give you some some different viewpoints some alternative viewpoints and i just think alternative voices are so important um and and this is one of the few that actually gives alternative voices and certainly the only one that i've seen with voices from asia at all actually i don't yeah i I don't remember seeing i i I, I mean people can correct me if there's something else out there i haven't seen anything with voices from asia talking about non-monogamy um, and and so that is one of the strongest points. But even beyond that, I mean, I should say that most of the people I interviewed, whether they were from North America or Europe, East Asia or Southeast Asia or South Asia or Africa or wherever, have in common that they're probably what you would call global citizens and they are fairly middle class. So it doesn't go into small communities in the middle of nowhere who are living on on. It's not it's not an academic book. No. Um, so and so you what you don't have the the form of non-monogamy that you don't really have in yeah. it is um, the one that more people may be familiar with, which is any kind of polygamy. Yeah, 
and, and, and polygamy is something that you see in smaller communities because not all, please know not all, but because polygamy tends to be um, religious or spiritually based or um, culturally based, you will see that in smaller communities, in non-middle class communities, because those are things that are not necessarily choices, their expectations. But I mean, there are a number of people I interviewed who grew up Muslim and for whom, at least in theory, but sometimes in practice, um, multiple marriages are a fact of life, albeit entirely gendered. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think the majority of, of, of the Muslims that I interviewed or, you know, culturally Muslim people I interviewed for the book were actually women. And the act of being consensually non-monogamous as a woman from a Muslim background is, uh, I mean, it's no surprise that they want to remain anonymous, but this kind of thing that can can bring all everything down on your head because everybody has an opinion, particularly about your personal life, if you're female. You know, if you're possessed of a vagina and an opinion, you are therefore dangerous. Yeah. So let alone uh, your own autonomous choices about your sex life and so on. I mean, it's 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 fairly horrendous. And... So it's quite a revolutionary act, but there are people who are educated and have at least enough funds that they can be reasonably independent. They're not, it, as, as is the case in, in many parts of the world where, where people are economically more marginal, where you, you forge relationships partly out of economic necessity, yes. for instance. Yes, um, and so that's a much bigger factor. So that is the limitation. Um, I would say that although it's a limitation, though, it isn't an academic book and... I see it as useful for people who are wanting to make a choice to live this way, who have that level of freedom, right? Yeah. And um, um, because it gives them a lot of the heffalump traps, it gives them a lot of different information on each aspect of what it takes to do this relationship. So where can they find this most easily? Uh, Most easily... Uh, I mean, I think it's available through bookshops in North America and online. Uh, Amazon, uh, book depository in the UK, places like that. Uh, search around and you'll find it. Uh, there's the Beyond Monogamy website you can get in touch, which is beyondmonogamy.world, uh, actually. And uh, you can ping us from that and uh, I can arrange for a copy of the book or point you in the right direction. You do not have an audio book yet. No, at some point I'll sort out the audio book. Are you going to record it or are you going to get someone else to record it? I, because there are so many other voices in there, I'm going to have to ask a couple of friends to do, one to do the female voices and one to do the male voices. And the two people I'm likely to record it with are both English. So you will have the slightly disconcerting effect of somebody sounding very English reading uh, uh, an interview by somebody who perhaps speaks English with a strongly Indian inflection, for instance, or a very European inflection, sort of French or, or, or what have you. And that may jar slightly. Uh, I worked quite a while at the World Service, so it's it's the kind of thing that you, you learn to have to deal with. Um, I do have recordings of pretty much everybody I interviewed for the books. These are all recorded interviews. But obviously, to to use those compromises people's anonymity. Yes. And yes. 
I've promised everybody to, to to guard that really carefully. And 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 even if they were to consent, the amount of editing that would have to go into yeah, that absolutely. is just is just absolutely. a nightmare. But I, yeah, no, I ask that because I'm often asked about that when I recommend books to people. They're like, "Oh, can you get it in an audiobook?" It's becoming more and more popular. So the answer to that is not yet, but imagine um, when he gets around to it, you'll <laughs> get it in audio book. Yeah, maybe, hopefully, in the next year or so. So watch out for that. Um, do go get it if you get it and you enjoy it. Please leave a review. Uh, I say this because I say this as an author and a podcast host where people hate writing reviews. They particularly hate writing reviews for anything around sex and relationships because they're afraid of being known. Please leave a review. It's actually really helpful in future sales. And um, writing is not a lucrative profession unless you um, write a piece of fiction that has become a movie. Yeah, it, it can be. I mean, some of the best-selling polyamory books uh, have have sold tens of thousands mm. of copies, so they do make the authors uh, a, a living. It's not really why I did this. I make my living doing other things. Um, but you should get, but you should get something back from what you do. I always say that. I always say that because I think it's really important that people acknowledge other people's labor. That's why. Yeah, and it keeps me in tea and biscuits. Yeah, and that's important. All right, so uh, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Laurie Beth. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have questions, uh, it's com. Fill in the contact form there. Um, I love it when people recommend topics and also people to interview and converse with. So do send me those recommendations. If you have personal questions about your personal situation and you write to me, you will be sent two things. Um, uh, one is a link to... Um, the general places where my free content is, and another is a link to set up an appointment. I do not have time to answer individual questions on individual situations. However, you can book yourself a 30-minute appointment with me, and the fee for that will be refunded against any work you do in future. Um, or if you just have one or two questions, then that covers my time. So I appreciate you, and I appreciate the comments and questions that you put forward. Next week, the letter is C. And it'll be a surprise what we decide to do for that one. In the meantime, have a wonderful week. Stay safe. And uh, don't forget to subscribe. You can subscribe on any of your favorite podcast providers. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave a review wherever it was you listened to it, but especially head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Reviews really help the show get out there. If you want to support my work, you can support it through my Patreon page. That's Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on Patreon.com. You can also head over to DrLoriBethBisbee.com and subscribe to my free mailing list which will keep you updated as to the activities I am getting up to and any special appearances. For people who subscribe to the Patreon, there are special broadcasts, merch, um, and the opportunity to get discounted tickets to a lot of the events that I do. Knowledge gives you power. The more you know, the better your relationships, the better your satisfaction and joy. 
If you've got suggestions for the show, comments or questions, do email at Beth at drlauribethbisbee.com and I will try and incorporate them. Have a wonderful week filled with loads of joy.